Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts answer questions and share real world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests, Brian Markowitz and Michael Nukatola. Brian, you graduated with a law degree from Brooklyn Law School, where you were also the president of the Phi Delta Phi, the International Legal Honor Society. You are a member of both the American Bar Association and the New York City Bar Association, and were selected as a rising star in the area of construction law from 2011 to 2013 by Super Lawyers Magazine. Wow, that's cool. Currently, you're a partner at the law firm of Goldstein Hall in Manhattan, and your practice areas include construction disputes, construction contract drafting and negotiation, and real estate and commercial litigation. Looking forward to your legal perspectives, and also I hope there'll be some great stories during today's episode. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak. Great to be here, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. Michael, you started out swinging a hammer, and then you worked your way up to an engineering degree at Cooper Union, followed by an MBA from the University of Michigan. You've also worked developing and facilitating major real estate projects for prominent developers and real estate investment funds like Aries Management, Rock Rose Development, and Boimel Green Developers. While you have worked on notable projects in New York like 20 Pine Street, 75 Smith Street, 43 Crescent Street, and 453 West 37th Street, your reach actually spans coast to coast. Currently, you are the president of Nukatola Development, which you founded in 2014. Your consulting services for institutional funds, developers, and landlords include the areas of acquisition, leasing, development, construction, marketing, and more. It'll be very interesting to hear what you have to say around planning for construction to go right and what one can do when it goes wrong. Great to have you too, and thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak, Michael. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. Brian, Michael, before we start, tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to choose your respective professions and how you collaborate with each other. Brian, Sure, I'll start. Um, I actually started in construction law um, quite by accident. Um, I started my career when I was still in law school with the New York City Law Department and ended up in the commercial and real estate litigation division handling mechanics lien cases and uh, realized I kind of liked it. And the whole construction aspect, decided that at that point that I wanted to make a career out of doing uh, construction. Uh, love going through, you know, cities like Manhattan and seeing buildings and projects and knowing that I had a, uh, at least a small part in, uh, either getting those buildings built or clearing up issues so those buildings could be built. How about you, Michael? Well, I also fell into this industry accidentally. I was going to engineering school with the hopes of becoming an anesthesiologist when the events of 9-11 got me involved in a new proposal to Port Authority for what to do with the, the World Trade Center site. Next thing you know, I was working in the industry as an estimator and 
loved it so much I couldn't imagine going back for my medical degree and stayed in it for the next 15 years. Great stories, guys. Thanks for sharing. Today, we're going to explore the process for planning a major gut renovation or ground-up construction project and what needs to be done in advance to increase the probability of a successful outcome with as few problems as possible. Is it a pipe dream to insinuate that this can happen with proper planning? I don't think that it is a highly probable situation that everything on your project goes well. Um, The role of project management and attorneys is to minimize risk. That's what we do. And there are some things that are just outside your control. No matter how safe you try to be, no matter what your safety program is, you are still working with people. Human, we make mistakes. Our job is just to you know, reduce the impact of those mistakes, try to anticipate them, have plans to to address them if we if we run into these problems, and I'll minimize that risk. Yeah, I just want to add that I think it's a mistake to to believe that you that you can have one of these projects without proper planning. That the proper planning is what leads to what Michael just said, um, of being able to mitigate against these risks, both from either the engineering, the construction, or even the legal side. From the legal point of view, if we get in early enough, project starts to go south. Uh, we can actually help mitigate those risks by bringing the parties to the table, discussing the issues earlier on, getting these issues out in the open so they don't become major uh, mistakes that need uh, major course corrections or major revisions later on down the line. But what happens first? Like, what's the first step that someone should take if they want to engage in this proper planning to mitigate as much risk as possible? You need a qualified team in place, uh, both on the project management side, on marketing, on leasing, on legal. And if you don't have that team in place, it's going to be very challenging. This is a complicated industry. You simply don't know what you don't know. If you haven't done it before, it is very hard to imagine the types of problems that you will encounter. And you rely on those trusted experts to give you good advice so you can make better decisions. And I think, as Michael said, I think the idea is to get those people all together earlier on in the project. The the quicker the engineers and the architects start talking, the design professionals are on the same page. The attorneys are on the same page, drafting the contracts that are necessary to get this process moving, uh, coming up with solutions with the insurance carriers and the insurance brokers to mitigate against whatever potential can happen down the line to even get the contractors into the room so that at the end of the day, the pro- the programmatic goals of the project are met through the cooperation of all of the parties that are involved. At what point do people start to put this team together? Did they do it before they even buy the site that they're going to develop or the building that they're going to gut renovate? Or do they do the acquisition? Now they have the acquisition. They've done some due diligence around land use and zoning. They pretty much know what they can do. At this point, they probably have an engineer, an architect, and an environmental specialist involved as part of the original due diligence. Is that the right way to go, or should they be doing something else first? I think earlier on when you're when you're acquiring the property, you're starting to put together your project team. You're putting together your zoning people. You're putting together your design professionals to figure out what can go within the, the envelope of the space. And at that point, you're meeting with the, the architects, the engineers, the attorneys, 
all together to put together with the next, as you're going forward, the next steps in the project. The earlier everyone is on board, the smoother the process is going to be because there becomes an institutional knowledge for the entire team where they're going to be able to uh, know what the goal is, where we're going with the project, how to accomplish the goals, what the parameters in terms of money, what the parameters in terms of time are. Uh, all of these parameters need to be discussed earlier on and need to be addressed from you know from all the angles once you start putting together that team that's going to be probably at the time of acquisition or or before acquisition and that's going to continue with you through the entire process on that same note the a lot of times my firm in and Brian as well I mean you know certainly on projects we've worked together you're tapped after the problems have occurred if you don't have the right team in place and their primary role is to identify the risks and you run into a problem you've never seen before, you need to then go out, find an expert who can help you solve that problem and bring them in. And then it becomes less about adding value to the project, which is what you build that team for, and more about damage control. I mean, lots of times we feel like special teams or, or janitors where we're coming in to clean up a mess that, you know, with proper planning could have been avoided. How does this play into project size? You know, some projects are larger than others. Some projects have more capital than others. How does that play into this whole process? On larger institutional projects, the cost of consultants is often a rounding error because the dollars involved are so large. When you start to deal with smaller projects, at the development level, once you get under the $50 million mark, you know, people have to wear more hats. They have to do more things. When you get under the $10 million level, you may not even have a fully qualified team. And when you're doing a million-dollar capital improvement, you may not have a team at all. You may be looking at your property manager and saying to him, I need you to take care of this renovation. And, you know, he has a lot of experience, you know, doing the rent roll, making sure that his employees get paid, but he doesn't know anything about contracting. And it could be very complicated. It could be a water infiltration problem that's over his head. You have to know when to bring in experts and to figure out where we can find the budget for that help, or you take the risk of running into future problems by not doing that. Yeah, I believe there's also, you run the risk sometimes, even especially on the smaller projects of being, you know, What's the expression? A penny wise and pound foolish. Uh, saving a couple of dollars on not hiring this expert or not engaging this attorney earlier on in the process is something that looks good and can save us a couple of dollars today. Uh, it can cost us more money later on. If we're chasing the issues later on, it's harder to solve them. It's harder to uh, make those issues less dramatic um, later on than if we get involved when it's it's uh, a smaller issue when it's smaller on the ground and uh, we can course correct and get what we need done at that point. One example, Brian and I worked on a project together where the developer opted to hire the lowest cost contractor uh, against our advice. And this contractor was putting in a proprietary system where if we had a problem, it would make the, the exit strategy to bring in another contractor would be very challenging. We would basically have to start over. So we were locked in with that contractor. Unfortunately, we ended up in litigation with, with the contractor, and we could not terminate them without starting over. And at the end of the day on that one, we were not only stuck with that contractor, but we were stuck with their solution. And in order to even find an expert to pinpoint that solution was a monumental task in and of itself. Someone who was familiar with that system, someone who was familiar with, uh, you know, 
forensically and an- analyzing what went wrong and what needed to be corrected and how it needed to be corrected. And we actually had to rely a lot on the contractor itself. Uh, you know, when we started opening things up, they were the ones who had to come in and close it and fix it because otherwise to bring a third party in was going to be even more expensive. So, you know, you have to trust your, your, your experts as well. And again, sometimes going with the lower price solution is not always the uh, best saving value. All right. So let's say that I've acquired a development site and it has a structure on it that I'm going to demolish and I'm going to build a new building. I already have, and I'm, I'm somewhat of an experienced developer. I've done this one or two times before. So I'm not just coming out of the gate on this. And I've acquired the property. I have an architect that has done a zoning study and he's given me kind of a schematic of what we think we can do. And I use that when I thought about, you know, how much I was going to pay per buildable foot. And now, now I'm ready to get to start doing this. And I, I do want legal involved. I do want a consultant involved. And again, I just want to clarify, you're, you're not an owner's rep. You're a consultant, Michael. We do owner's rep work as well, but we are primarily a management consultant and we provide construction consulting and development advice. From the consulting point of view, from that perspective, at the point that I just described, how would this developer then engage the two of you as now part of this existing team? And what would be the steps that they would take from that point on? So we would look at this project and we would immediately start to identify the risks, look at their budget, see if they've allocated resources that would be sufficient to address those risks and start to make recommendations along those lines. In addition to that, we would then look at their drawings, go through a review to see if there are ways that we could improve them. We would look at bringing in a construction team for the project as a general contractor or a CM, depending on what the owner's preferences are and start to go through figuring out how to build it. And, and what's a, just uh, so our listeners know, what would be the difference between a general contractor and a CM, which stands for construction manager? General contractors are generally taking projects um, completely at risk. They are 100% lump sum. So they tell you that they're going to do the job for $100 million, and that's all they get to finish the project. The profit margins tend to be a little better for general contractors because they're taking on more risk, which makes sense. Construction managers, on the other hand, get a fee for for building a project. They are less at risk. They end up establishing what is a guaranteed maximum price or GMP, and that takes time. Generally, you want to go that route when your drawings are less developed and not as polished as they could be because there's a lot more unknowns in the project and a lot more risk for you as the developer. So at this point, uh, have I filed anything with the Department of Buildings? Have I already done some kind of environmental testing? Um, You know, what are some of the things that would have preceded this point? I would hope you had done your environmental testing before you purchased the building, because that is one of the biggest mistakes that I see on projects where... And this happens? This You've seen this happen? We can talk about a project here where we had a... They went through 
I want to say three or four different environmental consultants, each one missing more asbestos and PCBs uh, on the building. And they thought they had half a million dollars of environmental work to do, turned out to be a million and a half, which then ballooned to two and a half million. And I was brought in when they crossed the million dollar mark, um, just because sometimes you get inspectors who miss things. And sometimes you get inspectors who didn't miss things, but excluded things in their proposal and the developer didn't understand the exclusion and didn't think it was material when in fact it was a million dollars of asbestos that the inspection that they had excluded. I think it's really important to understand scope writing which is one of the things that we do. Architects don't write scopes, engineers don't write scopes, you really need a project manager to write a scope for you and that's the most important thing about uh, minimizing risk when dealing with contractors and consultants is establishing what is their role? What are they supposed to do? What should they be looking at? You have to know that. And then it's incorporating that scope properly into the construction contract so that at the end of the day, there's really no dispute. So once you have a properly developed scope, that scope has to be included as, I mean, almost exhibit A into the contract itself so that everyone has to be in an agreement on this. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, you put the scope in there and there's still disputes about what the contractor or the, the consultant is supposed to be doing. That's the key on day one. They need to know when they walk into the door on that project or the empty uh, space on the project, what it is they're supposed to accomplish from point A to point B to point C. And they have to be able to get through that project using the scope of work. And the scope is going to change. I mean, that's why contracts have change orders. Conditions on the ground are going to change. Uh, the needs of the owner are going to change. The programmatic goals are going to change, whatever it is. But the scope of work has to be defined. It has to be set forth and it has to be agreed upon by the parties. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I look at you know contracts, especially subcontracts, where scope of work is just empty. They don't say anything. It, it's a generalized statement that doesn't give any direction. And then at the end of the day, there's a dispute saying, you know, for $50 million saying, well, that wasn't in the contract, you know, or, you know, even $5 million or $500,000, whatever the number is, is irrelevant. But the dispute is how much work needed to be done under the terms of the contract. And that needs to be open and clear and concise and in detailed as uh, as can be. So everyone understands what needs to be done. I think it's really important that you have a contract. Lots of times there isn't even a contract and developers will just sign or initial a subcontractor's proposal, which we advise against. I remember I got a proposal once years ago from a mason for $650,000. And this was a mid-rise building in New York. The proposal was brick, $650,000, and it had a place for you to sign on the bottom. That's not a contract, but there are people who sign those kinds of documents because they don't know any better. And one of the reasons that I rely on Brian a lot is he writes a really great contract. We don't use standard AIA contracts on any of our projects because they don't protect our clients as well as custom contracts that we bring to the table. The problem with the standard contracts is every project is not one size fits all. So how can a standard quote unquote contract apply? The one size fits all approach 
really misses a lot of what needs to be addressed. And the problem is you know, people have fallen into the habit of using these contracts. They are the industry standard in a lot of ways, but customized contracts where we go through it and we can address the issues as they are, as they pertain to this project from scratch is a much better way to go. And it doesn't cost the owner or even the contractor, whoever is paying for the services, doesn't cost them that much more. It's an incremental step to go to go and not use one of these AIA contracts. But I'm not bashing the AIA. I mean, they're a great organization. You know, a customized set of contracts is, uh, in, in my opinion, is the way to go in terms of getting the most protection that you're going to have uh, for the project. And when you say AIA, that's the American Institute of Architecture. Correct. Right. Well, I guess you could use the standard contract and then just add a bunch of addendums, but then there would be all these contradictions, right? Yes. And then what ends up happening is people uh, tend to argue, well, that's not what's in the standard. Why did you add that? Well, because it needs to be added, but it's not in the standard, but it needs to be ended, but it's not in the standard. And you just end up going back and forth. When you start with a custom set, and when I say custom set, I mean, let's say if I'm representing the owner, while the contract is going to protect the owner-developer, it's not going to be an unfair contract to the contractor. You know, you always have to take the viewpoint that as the attorney drafting these contracts, your job is to get the deal done and protect your client, but it's not to get in the way of the project. Everybody wants a deal done. Everyone wants to make their money. So not to get involved in getting and stopping the deal, but just to get the protections that your client needs. And every project has different risks. We need a custom solution for every project because every building is different. Every site is different and the parties who work on it are different. They have different insurance. The state laws are different when you go from one state to another and you don't have Title 240 in Connecticut. We have that only in New York. That's why you need a custom solution everywhere and I think it's inappropriate to use the AIA on every project. You know, and an excavation contract is going to be very different than, say, a roofing contract, which is going to be different than an electrical uh, subcontract. And the AIA versions would have, you know, subcontract. I mean, they're customizable. You can put stuff in there. But if you're starting with different sets and you, you have different parameters, you can actually make a better contract with your uh, client. And that's actually going to protect both parties better. So at this point, We've done our due diligence, we've gotten our environmental, we've acquired the property, we've begun to put together our team, we've decided to go with a custom contract, we're using a consultant to look everything over and make sure it's right. Now, what's happening at this point? At this point, you are working on your drawings, trying to get to a bid set uh, and preferably a construction set. I find that you know, when you bid... Bid sets, they tend to be very different from construction sets. And to avoid change orders, you don't want to award a job based on a bid set. You want to award a job on a construction set that's been filed with the Department of Buildings. And then you're going to be married to that set of drawings for the rest of the project. Once you have those drawings, you need to find a contractor and you know, run an RFP process, so requests for proposals. And then you need to level the playing field, see which contractors you want to work with, which ones you don't, try to see why one contractor is higher or lower than another. We look for dramatic differences in prices as warning signs, things that uh, either someone missed generally or someone added in that they 
uh, made a mistake when they were doing their takeoff. Sometimes they miss half a building or they miss a floor, and you start to wonder, well, why are they so much cheaper than everyone else in a competitive market? So there's a term for that. Bid leveling? Bid leveling, right. Doing bid leveling. So whose responsibility is that? If they have a consultant and they have an attorney as part of the team, whose responsibility is that? That's going to fall on the project management team. Throughout the initial pre-construction phase, we are going to lean on legal for contractual advice and and dealing with insurance language as well and in incorporating the insurance broker or insurance underwriter's requirements into the project. The actual negotiations with contractors, the leveling of bids, the walkthroughs, the reviewing of drawings and writing of scopes and reviewing those scopes is going to fall on your construction consultant or project manager, or in many cases, if you don't have that, it falls on your general contractor and construction manager. I think the best solution is you have a construction manager, they should write a scope, your consultant should review that scope and see what they can do to improve it. And if you don't have a construction manager then, or a project manager, then the consultant could write the scope, do the bid leveling, and then at this point, we choose the contractor? Yes. And so then the next step is the schedule, right? Schedule has to be done during the bid negotiations. You know, you'll send the, you have some idea of how long it takes to build the building, but you're going to rely on your contractor's input to give you better data. And so you will build that schedule along the way. And that schedule becomes an exhibit in the contract. And at the same time that you're doing that, a lot of times, especially in a crowded city like New York, you're going to be dealing with adjacent landlords as well for access, protection, uh, underpinning. At the same time that you're dealing with the scheduling and putting together the bid set, the legal team needs to be getting out in front of dealing with those landlords and those property managers so you can uh, require acquire the necessary access to those properties. And sometimes those should just be easy negotiations, and sometimes they end up being in litigations that can drag out for a couple of months. A necessary evil that you have to deal with them, the access protection, underpinning, that kind of stuff. But you do need to get out in front and deal with that early on so that doesn't delay you know the start of your project. So what's an example of that where someone, you know, is getting ready to start digging and they're going to be dealing with the underpinning of the adjacent building and they need to get access? Give me an example of one where it was challenging and how much extra time did it put on the project? We're actually dealing with one right now where we're probably delayed about five months because the other side is not allowing the access. Fortunately, for various reasons, we've decided not to go to court to obtain the access, and we've actually had to redesign the project at a cost to the owner to eliminate the underpinning on that particular side of the building. Even after eliminating the underpinning on that side of the building and only really requiring protection of the roof and uh, the backyard areas, the adjacent uh, landlord is still giving us issues and not permitting us access. And we're actually at the point where we may actually have to go to court no matter what. Um, and unfortunately, it's, that's going to delay the uh, construction a couple more months. And every delay is costs to the owner, not even, you know, not talking about my time or, you know, legal fees, but just costs and getting the project completed and getting it finished in a timely manner is going out the window quickly because of these issues. Unfortunately, this is a uh, a product of being in a city like New York, having buildings next to each other, and we need, do need to protect uh, adjacent properties and adjacent property owners from damage. And even with the best laid access agreements uh, on these issues, I mean, problems still arise. So it, this is something 
that needs to be addressed early. It needs to be addressed uh, both in, from the legal point of view in conjunction with the engineering team to address the proper engineering uh, proposals that need to be uh, for the underpinning as well as the access and protection. Is that something that maybe should be done even prior to the acquisition of the site? You can't enter into the license agreement prior to the acquisition of the site. The best you can do is enter into it uh, concurrent with the acquisition of the site, which we've done on certain properties. But it's actually, as you develop your plan, if you're going to go down more than a certain amount of feet, you're going to need to underpin uh, the adjacent property. So once you know that, you can start planning that this is something you're going to need to do. You can have preliminary discussions with the other side and try to uh, mitigate the delays from approaching them early, being friendly with them, getting, you know, into their good graces. But unfortunately, you're almost at their mercy in some respects and litigation may or may not be on the table and litigation can't really occur until you do acquire the property. And once there is litigation and you take them to court, the court can actually compel them to give you access? The court can compel pursuant to, in, well, in New York, we have a statute called 881 um, of the Real Actions Property and Proceeding Law that permits you access to the property for certain temporary protections such as you know, rooftop protection, rear yard protection, sidewalk sheds, that kind of stuff. There's a section in the building code that specifically deals with underpinning, and at least in New York City, makes 881 petitions applicable to the underpinning uh, and being able to get access for that. That is actually a slight controversy statewide because the rest of the state doesn't really permit underpinning directly through an 881 petition as New York City is supposed to be allowing. Is, the, is that a benefit for people outside of the city or in the city? No, the building code in New York City provides that ADD1 is applicable so that theoretically you should be able to go into court and get uh, a judge to order you to be able to underpin. Now, when I say that the judge is going to order you to underpin, they're not just going to say, hey, go ahead and just do what you want. You're going to have to have plans approved by the building department that are going to have to be signed off by the adjacent landlord. You're going to have to provide insurance their engineer fees to look at it, any other costs they may have, attorney's fees, stuff like that. So you're not gonna just going to be able to say, hey, I'm going to underpin your property and the court's just going to allow me to do what I want, but you're going to be able to do it with parameters. Um, so therefore, it stops a an adjacent landlord from stopping our building. The, the general principle in New York is that you can't, you cannot stop construction. I'm allowed to construct my building and I should be able to have whatever minimal intrusions upon your building to be able to have me able to construct my building so that, you know, progress happens in New York. It obviously pays for the person who's acquiring the site to uh, kind of test the waters with their neighbors in advance while they're getting, I mean, there's no guarantee. I mean, the person can change their mind and decide, you know, that they don't want to give access, but I could see where, you know, during your due diligence, that would probably be, be one of the things that you would want to do. You have anything to say on that, Michael? Generally, most neighbors don't want you to touch their building in any way, shape or form because they don't trust you. The underpinning issue, we find those cases are very hard to prevail on. And particularly when, you know, if there is an alternative solution, which usually involves some type of piles or secant wall that you can do where you do not have to underpin the adjacent building, then you will not be successful in prevailing for asking for an underpinning judgment because they'll say, look, you have another alternative. Why should you, you know, put this adjacent property at structural risk by underpinning it when you can do something else? 
the alternative solution that ends up being more expensive than underpinning. Usually is more expensive than underpinning, but it's usually lower risk at the same time. So, you know, you have to evaluate the situation and look at the the big picture. You know, how much time do we lose negotiating and litigating? What does that cost us as opposed to going with this alternative solution, which is more dollars up front, but it may solve the problem and we get our project moving. Michael, explain underpinning. Underpinning is when you excavate beneath the foundation of your of an adjacent property. What that does is it removes that support structure that's underneath it, and that building then has an opportunity to shift or lean in some direction. We underpin it to prevent it to provide support so that we're allowed to excavate below it. So when you have a very tall building going in, they tend to have deeper foundations than smaller buildings, and so those smaller buildings need to be underpinned when you're doing that excavation. And the underpinning takes place during the excavation of the site. Yes. The site is excavated, the underpinning has been done, or you've chosen an alternative solution. You have all your contracts, you have your scope, everyone knows what they're supposed to do. There's either a consultant, a construction manager in place, uh, or a consultant and a general contractor, and now they're going to start to build the building. What about subcontractors? The general contractor has hired all these other people to do aspects of the construction project that the general contractors are not self-performing. How does that play into all of this? So if you hired a general contractor uh, with a lump sum agreement, they would hire subcontractors. They would have any contract form that they want with those subcontractors. They're responsible for managing them, and you would not be privy to that information generally. If you hired a construction manager with a GMP, what you then have is an open book and you're very involved in the subcontractor selection process, the scope writing, and the form of contract agreement between the construction manager and the subcontractor. But even with a general contractor relationship with a lump sum, a lot of times what some of our contracts will provide is that on a a major subcontractor, a subcontractor over a certain amount of money or performing a major scope of work such as excavation or such as foundation work or something along those lines, the owner will have a right to approve the use of that subcontractor. The owner may have a reason to say, we don't you know, want that one, we'll choose someone else. Now, sometimes a those contracts will also provide that if you to, uh, decide to not use one of those uh, subcontractors and don't give a valid reason that you have to pay the cost uh, increase uh, to go to a second subcontractor. An alternative solution uh, in the past that we've used is we've required those subcontractors that we may not necessarily want on the project to provide a, a performance bond or surety on the project. It adds a cost to the job, but there then provides some level of assurance that that subcontractor is going to perform. And if not, then the surety can be called in to make sure that they perform. Now the project is happening and nobody really wants to hear about when it goes right because nobody needs any solutions for that. So let's talk about when it goes wrong from this point on and what some of the solutions are and what the ultimate solution sometimes has to be. Michael? So one of the problems that we see on projects is that they're not staffed properly. You may buy from a a construction manager that they owe you a PM, a super, an assistant super, and either sometimes they don't deliver those personnel and sometimes they're not qualified to be there. Uh, 
particularly in a very busy environment um, like we have now or we had back in 2006 in the last cycle. It's very hard to get qualified personnel on projects. We make it a requirement on projects to review the resumes of all the individuals working on that project prior to awarding a contract to a contractor. We want to know who their PMs are, who their supers, whether they're qualified, and we have to make judgment calls as to whether we think they are suitable for the project or not. And then we write their names into the contract to make sure that they are the ones that are actually going to show up on day one and not someone else. If we see any weaknesses, we try to figure out how to resolve those items. Can we add someone else to the team? You know, what does that cost us? Uh, if they don't, we don't think their punch listing super is great, we like everyone else on the team, well, why can't we get someone else there to help him and that, you know, make us feel more comfortable with giving that contract to someone? So as Mike said, we'll often name the super, the PM, into the contract itself. But we'll also provide that the owner has the right to request, uh, for reasonable reasons, the removal of those personnel if they're not working on the project properly or if they're just not getting along with the rest of the project staff or the ownership group. We'll have the right to ask that those people be removed from the project to be replaced or reassigned or and have the right to review the resumes and the qualifications of someone else. I mean, you may look at someone on paper and realize, you know, six months down the road, they weren't the right person or they were the right person for phase A and now we're into phase B. Stuff changes and we have the right to make those changes on the fly as, as need be. It's something that there is some pushback sometimes from the, the contracting groups, but it's something that we generally insist on. All right, so now you have the key people, they're written in the contract, you know who your personnel is going to be. What's the next phase? Quality is really important on projects. Make sure that you get what you pay for. And there are a number of ways to monitor quality. Are you talking about the quality of the finishes, the quality of the construction, the quality of the finished project, the quality of the way people work on site, or all of them? We're talking about all of it. What happens is that there are plans and specifications that you're building towards. So if your concrete has to be a quarter inch tolerance in 10 feet, someone should be out there checking that to make sure that it meets that standard or specification. At the same time, it goes all the way in the opposite direction when you're looking at finishes and do you see roller marks on the wall from someone painting? Where does the buck stop with this stuff? Does it stop? At the construction manager? Does it stop at the project manager? Does it stop at the super? Does it stop it at you, the consultant? Quality goes all the way straight to the owner, and it's important at the beginning of the project to establish what those standards are. What are you expecting? On structural elements and mechanical elements, there is often a very detailed printed specifications from the engineer, and they draw on standards from different organizations that publish what those requirements should be for, for concrete or steel or plumbing. For finishes like painting or flooring, those standards are a little more loose and harder to interpret. And so what we recommend doing is doing an out-of-sequence mock-up of what it should look like and establishing a standard up front. It makes it a lot easier when everybody agrees that this is the standard, this is what we expect, and any deviations, we can, we can compare it to what was done originally and say, you know, the work that you're doing now is substandard. And I think the quality falls on everyone on the project to monitor that and look at it. You should dedicate personnel for monitoring quality based on their 
capabilities, their strengths, their experience, so that you, you can monitor this process throughout the project. To address that point as well, the quality control aspect really needs to be a team work in progress. Uh, I mean, I've recently had a case in which we just finished arbitration on in where the owner did not have an architect that he really relied on for quality control. And he didn't really have any owner's rep or a consultant to go forward with all this. And in his mind, what he, he was most concerned with on a daily basis was the finishings, the high, you know, to make this a high end project to make sure that it looked aesthetically immaculate. So all of the letters that he and emails that he wrote on a contemporary basis all addressed the issues of the aesthetics of the project. And at the same time, behind the scenes, there were issues with plumbing. There were issues with electrical. There was issues with the bulkhead, with the roof, with the HVAC. And all of this delayed the project well over a year. And at the end of the day, here we are in arbitration, and they're just showing his letters contemporaneously saying, well, the paint is wrong, the finishing is wrong, the molding is wrong, the flooring is wrong, nothing about the HVAC, but yet the HVAC sign-offs couldn't happen for several years. And there was constantly bringing back the HVAC guys, and the electrical had issues, and the plumbing had issues, and there were so many issues on the project. And the contractor was trying to argue that you never told us about these throughout the entire project. Now, I mean, they were in the project meeting minutes with the architect and stuff like that, but not to the detail of the paint is wrong, the flooring's wrong, the carpeting's wrong, whatever it was. And so I think you need to, from a quality control point of view, you need to have an eye on the 360 degree part of the project. It's not, you can't be myopic and say, I'm looking at the finishing, I'm looking at the um, the textures, I'm looking at the, the appliances that were put in. You have to look at everything and you need to be able to look at this and contemporaneously say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is right, whatever it is. And this way you have a complete view of what the project been uh, at the time that it was happening. So I'm going to go back to my original question. Where does the buck stop? I mean, because it sounds to me like there would need to be a lot of people that were involved in that quality control process, but there has to be somebody that's responsible for all of it. There has to be that one person or entity that if the quality control is not up to the standard of expectation, then whose responsibility is that? That comes back to also uh, from a contracting drafting point of view. In the contract drafting process, who is responsible for what has to be spelled out. In this case, we weren't involved until litigation. So from a contracting drafting point of view, there was no supervisory uh, responsibilities from, on behalf of you know any of the members of the design team. There was no owner's rep involved. There was no consultants involved. The owner tried to take all these responsibilities onto himself. He was someone who had some experience, but not uh, a vast amount of experience. And he did not look at this from what could be thrown down the pipe later later on in litigation. He looked at it as, what can I do to get my building uh, rented out as quickly as possible? And by the way, that spot on the wall needs to be repainted because no one's going to pay the rents I want with that spot on the wall. Often projects, when they fall behind and they get accelerated, quality falls behind. 
The contract says or should say who is responsible for quality. And on most projects that I'm involved in, the owner and the owner's rep and some combination of the design team is responsible for determining whether work meets the standards of the project or not. And then it is the contractor's obligations to meet those standards. It is more challenging to get them to comply with finishes, which are much more subjective than mechanical elements or structural elements where there's a set standard and I can take a tape measure and say, you're not in compliance. It's very hard for me to say to someone that, you know, that wall, the paint looks a little off on it. I'm not sure what's wrong. Can we just paint it again? And to convince them to do that work because I can't put a tape measure to it. You know, you have to have some way to prove it to them and convince them that it is not within the standards of the project, and that's why that mock-up is really important. And the mock-up, again, just being an example of what it's supposed to look like, it's like practice session in a sense. Yeah, sometimes we'll build entire units or several units as mock-ups, and we'll say, you know, we'll build a whole floor out of sequence in a building and say this floor is the mock-up floor. Every other floor in the building must look like this with the same level of quality that we're expecting here. And now there's a point of reference. Well, it sounds to me like quality control is a very, 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 very critical part of the project. And obviously, you know, from the examples that you just gave and Brian, you said, you know, this really has to be written into the contract. Like, what are the expectations? And and I guess it's really about expectations and leadership. It's about, yeah, it's about understanding whose responsibility is what. And again, I mean, it goes right back to the beginning of the day where we spoke about the scope of the work. Um, it's something that needs to be spelled out. It's something that needs to be drilled down. And it's something that everybody has to be on board with. So we've got quality control covered, and we have key personnel covered, and now things are really going south. Maybe there's some fraud. Maybe the quality control is just not up to the standard that we need. No matter what we do, it doesn't meet our expectations, either from a aesthetic point of view or a mechanical or a structural point of view. So let's talk a little bit about fraud. One of the problems that we see is you buy something and either you don't get it or you get something else. So uh, a problem in the industry, we see quite a bit of where they, they buy something and they like, they try to get something else or one of their, their second tier or third tier vendors provides a product that they thought would be fine. They're not, re- you know, they're not looking at the contract and they're like, oh, my owner doesn't know the difference between one HVAC unit and another if I put this one in and it costs less and they don't know the difference. What's the big deal? Make it a rule not to pay deposits for anything. We do pay for stored material where you've ordered something, you've acquired it, you haven't installed it yet, but it was a million dollars, and it might not get installed for another six months. It's very hard to float that million dollars for six months. We then will go out, we'll inspect it, we'll take photos, we get a certificate of insurance for stored material, we file a UCC form. The UCC is a universal commercial code form. And what that does is... If that contractor goes out of business or they suddenly disappear, don't want to finish our job, we can get a court order to go and take possession of that material because we own it. And we can get someone else to install it and finish the job, which is what happens when you have to replace a contractor on a job. At the start of the job, when the contractor starts, he or she has materials they have to order. They have subcontractors they have to pay or personnel if they're self-performing. 
aren't they entitled to some kind of a deposit up front? Think of it like this. When you ask someone to, you know, wash your car or repaint your house, do you pay them up front? You pay them out for the, for the work that they've completed. Yeah, but the scale, the scale of the uh, finances is very, very different in those two examples. I mean, if I'm doing a $10 million construction project and for me to start the job, I've got to lay out, you know, a million and a half dollars. I mean, that would probably disqualify what would ordinarily be a very, very qualified contractor who can perform to the expectation of the owner, but doesn't necessarily have the ability to fund that job. What, what's the solution for that? We often ask questions about contractors and their finances and their ability to finance the project. You may not feel comfortable financing a contractor because it reduces your leverage over them later on, especially in a litigation situation where, you know, what is our recourse? How do we entice this contractor to settle as opposed to take us to court? Leverage is everything, and we prefer to have leverage over the contractor. All of our contracts hold 10% retainage, which states that for every dollar that they earn, we are going to hold 10% of that in abeyance until the end of the project to make sure that they finish it and that the quality is there and that there are no problems. I don't believe that you should fund contractors for material. They should be able to foot that bill. They should have credit from their suppliers, which is pretty standard practice in the industry. And if your contractor is asking you to fund their business, I have to wonder what, what's going on there. That's a, that, that raises a red flag. That doesn't mean that I won't do business with them, but I'm going to scrutinize them and try to understand why they have this problem. How could they be, how could they want to take a $10 million contract and not be able to fund that kind of project? Have they ever done this before? How much other work do they have going on? These are the types of questions you have to ask during that due diligence process of looking at what kind of contractor you want on your project. And from a legal point of view, I mean, even if we do end up giving a deposit on the project, which will often happen despite Michael's insistence, you know, we don't want to do it. Uh, oftentimes we're in the position where we sort of have to do it. So once we do give that money, we need to make sure that we have certain uh, protections on that end. We need to require that the uh, monies exchanged for lien waivers, that we know where the monies are going, that a lot of times we'll ask for uh, invoices up front to say, you know, we'll fund the deposit to the extent that you're paying a deposit to somebody. It's not going to be extra money in your pocket. And this comes from a, on a project management point of view. You have to make sure you're not getting too far in front on the payments because, you know, for lack of a better term, as Michael said, leverage at the end of the day. You don't want to be so far out of the of the project that you've paid for 40, 50% of the work and only have gotten 20% of the work accomplished. It leads to bad situations that way. We'd like to make sure we get lien waivers. We'd like to make sure that we're funding only on invoices that are properly submitted. We'd like, a lot of times we'll, we'll want to inspect the materials are being delivered to the project site uh, that are, that you're paying for. These are long lead items that are, you know, sometimes we'll even go to the vendor themselves and inspect the facilities if these are in storage. We, Michael discussed all the issues before of how you know we look at it. We we get the uh, the UCC forms. We'll take pictures and and we'll make sure that we're not getting too far ahead of the payment process uh, with these deposits. 
one of the things I like to do is try to make deposits refundable. And even if you can't necessarily get the actual money back, you can always deduct it from the future payments. One other solution is, you know, two-party checks work where the contractor says he needs this money to pay a supplier. We're willing to do it, but we want that to make sure that money goes directly to the supplier. And so we'll write a two-party check to the supplier, which gets co-signed by both the contractor and, uh, and the client. And then I would imagine that in the construction contract that you have with the, contra- with the contractor, it does specify for a payment schedule. Yes, it does. But often those payment schedules are lax in language on what happens in these situations with deposits or payments for stored materials. Uh, Better contracts will have language for that, but I don't believe it's common practice in the industry, particularly on the topic of deposits. Will you speak to that, Brian? It's a tough part of the contract to negotiate out because the contractors are always going to say up front that we can't start the project unless we get uh, X amount of money up front. What you want to do is you want to put into the contract words like uh, the deposits uh, refundable, that we're getting the lien waivers in exchange for it. We're going to take as much mitigation of the risk out of the situation, but we can't fully alleviate all the risk in these situations. And that's it's, sometimes it's just a business decision at the end of the day of how much risk the ownership group is willing to accept. Also, it's going to depend on the contractor himself. Is this someone who's very well known in the industry, someone who's done this before, someone we've worked with before, uh, someone who we have a rep- built a reputation, either good or bad, so that we'll be able to know how to manage the risk. In terms of the, the, the contract itself on the payment schedule, a lot of times those payment schedules will be the contractor can bill monthly for work that it's as it's progressed. And that's usually verified by the architect, a lot of times by an owner's rep to make sure that the percentage of work that's included within the line items has actually been done. And in terms of deposits, since we're pre-billing for that, you're not going to be able to bill for the next percentage of work done until you've accomplished enough percentage to cover the down payment for that line item. So if we're talking about a deposit for curtain wall, if you've put down, throwing out a number, 10%, the curtain wall up front in the deposit, until you've installed 11% of curtain wall, you're not getting paid another dime for curtain wall. A lot of oversight. But it sounds to me like, like you said, you know, once you uh, are working with a contract that has a good reputation, you have a you or someone you know well has a history with them, and of course things can change because people's situations change, companies' uh, situations change. But like you say, you manage the risk, you have a higher comfort level, you do what you think is right, but you try to stay ahead of the money, not behind the money so that you have leverage if something goes wrong. Let's talk about a couple of other things, and then I would actually like to hear about when you have to change the contractor. What about insurance? There have been a lot of decisions in the last couple of years, particularly in New York, that have had a tremendous impact on the industry. Brian and I were were talking about a, a recent decision about just trying to get additional insured status properly on a project and a difference that a couple words will make on a document will determine whether or not a multi-million dollar judgment against you is going to be successful or not. 
like every other part of the project, getting experienced personnel involved with the insurance is key. You need an insurance broker who understands construction insurance, not car insurance, not homeowners insurance, but who will understand real property, understands construction, these commercial lines, and has experience in what policies are necessary, what exclusions should not be included. I I can't tell you how many times I've looked at a a contract and I asked for the insurance policy and it has exclusions for the very work that the contractor is supposed to be performing on the project. And you, you just look at them and say, you wanted me to accept this? And they're like, oh, we didn't even read it. They just get bought without being read more often than not. And looking at the policies takes a couple of minutes. I mean, they're thick, they're, they're tough to get through, but you can't, you have to look at the policy itself to know what exclusions are there, to know what the languages are, and not just the one page binder or record form to just see what dollar amounts are out there. But also with insurance, it is also a dollar amounts game as well. You have to understand certain contractors have way more risk and they're going to need way more insurance. A million dollar policy is not going to be sufficient for an excavation contractor. It's not going to be sufficient for a hoist contractor. You're going to need multiple layers of excess and or umbrella policies in the tens and twenties of millions of dollars to cover a, to cover an average project. And that costs money, but a good contractor should be able to provide those levels of uh, coverage from either them and or their subs combined uh, to give you the proper level of coverage that you need. When you're talking about a major project, you might want to start moving into owner-controlled insurance policies or contractor-controlled insurance policies, uh, wrap-up policies. There's many different products out there that can uh, lower the costs without lowering the uh, level of protection that you're offered. And this is why you need to be able to consult with a experienced insurance broker. And, you know, luckily both Michael and I know several of them out there and, uh, you know, we have them on call to ask our questions and to get them involved with our projects when necessary. And you mentioned subcontractors. I mean, you have to look at their policies as well, right? Because the general contractor could have the right kind of insurance and he may assume that his subcontractors or she may assume that their subcontractors have the right kind of assurance, but maybe they don't. We have to read the entire general liability, workers' comp, and umbrella or excess policy for every single vendor on the project, every second-tier sub, third-tier sub, anyone who sets foot on that project. We have to read the entire policy, which is often 150 pages to 200 pages. When you have 30 to 50 different parties working on a project, you can imagine how much time you spend reading insurance documents looking to see if there are exclusions that, you know, would prohibit your roofer from working on the exterior of a building, for example, which sounds ridiculous. But that is a real thing that I had on a project where someone bid the project, got the project, we reviewed his insurance, and... I asked him, I said, you know, your insurance doesn't permit you to work on the outside of a building, but you're a roofer. And he says, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. My broker said, don't worry about it. Nobody reads these things. But I'm here reading it to you. And that is a a real problem. And so if there was a claim that involved the exterior of the building, the insurance wouldn't pay it. That's correct. That is absolutely correct. And then whose responsibility does it become then, the owner? Well, the owner will then seek redress from the contractor who will then have to seek redress from the subcontractor. Obviously, now we're talking about uh, litigation going down the rabbit hole of that is money and time. And so a little bit of time and money up front to review the insurance policies is well worth it to avoid that kind of dispute. 
much later on where it can actually stop the project or bring a project to a halt uh, immediately. On a similar vein, I mean, I had a contractor who was uh, doing a new ground-up construction and was specifically excluded in his policy from doing new construction, only renovations. That was, that was actually our client, and, we, we, and there was a claim and when they were excluding, and we were like, how did you do this? He goes, oh, I never read it. We didn't know. There are policies that exclude work on condominiums. So maybe you're working on a rental project. The owner says, oh, we're converting this to a condominium. We're going to sell these. And then you can no longer work on that project because your insurance has a condominium exclusion in it. Or you'll have a contractor doing, uh, who has in their scope of work excavation. Now, they may be subcontracting that out, but they may have in their policy an exclusion for excavation work. And then you know, you're not going to be covered by the subcontractor's policy necessarily because you're now in a direct contractual relationship with somebody who has that work excluded from their policy. So you're now in a position to leapfrog over the person that you have a contract with to get to someone who has a contract with that person's insurance. And and even if you're an additional insured on those policies, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you that you're going to be able to collect from those policies. You need to read the policies. You need to understand what's in those policies. You may, you know, if you have a small subcontractor on a project, you may say, okay, we're not necessarily worried about their policy. But if you have a major subcontractor on a project, you need to look at those policies. I'm listening to you guys and I'm learning so much. And I think our listeners are too. I mean, this is fantastic. It sounds to me like the checklist that a pilot goes through before he takes off is actually maybe simpler and no disrespect to pilots because they have a very, very difficult job but could almost be simpler than the checklist that you must go through when you're doing a ground up or gut renovation development project. Well, I think the the big difference there is that the pilot goes through the same checklist every time and we don't. We need a custom solution every time. I mean, there are some things that are same from, from project to project, but every project has different problems and different requirements. And so you don't have one standard checklist that fits all of the boxes. And that's where having a consultant and a good legal team, and of course, a good team of everybody else that's involved in the project is mission critical. I want to go over one more thing before we get into what happens when you've got to change the contractor. You talked a little bit before, Michael, about liens or lien waivers. Touch a little bit about you know why a lien would show up on a building, uh, what the lien waiver is, and how to execute that, at what point do you execute that, and how to protect yourself from having liens filed on a building where there really isn't any justification for whoever it is that's filing the lien. So contractors put liens on projects when they don't get paid. They don't get paid for a variety of reasons, whether they're delaying the project, the owner's not happy about something, or there's a dispute over a change order, or the owner maybe has run out of money. I think Brian is an expert on mechanics liens and uh, can talk about how we address them and why we need lien waivers. Let's take a step back. What exactly is a lien? A lien is an encumbrance on the real property. It's a cloud against the title of the real property. So as Michael said, when a contractor or subcontractor is not paid for work, material, labor, or services that have been incorporated into the project, they have a statutory right to file a mechanics lien in New York. There are specific time frames for doing so. Those liens then show up on title reports. They can prevent bank lend or lender funding from 
funding the project. They can be a technical default on either the mortgage or the construction loan. So they are very, very potent devices for contractors and subcontractors against owners when they're not being paid. To that respect, there's definitely ways to get liens off the property. One of the easier, quicker ways is to bond and discharge the lien. In New York, you're permitted to file a bond for a, in the amount of 110% of the amount of the lien in order to get that lien removed from the property. That doesn't mean that there's no more lien, but in fact, what happens is the bond becomes the security for the lien instead of the real property. And that's something that a, that an owner will often have to do, or in the case of a subcontractor lien, a lot of the contracts uh, that I draft will provide that the contractor has to discharge those liens. And um, I generally try to make it so that the contractor has to discharge the lien regardless if they've been paid for the subcontractor's actual scope of work, because there are legitimate reasons why an owner may not pay for a subcontractor's work. They weren't happy with the services, the services were defective, whatever it is, and the owner should not be the one who has to discharge those liens. But the, if they do end up having to discharge the liens, we generally provide in our contracts that though the cost of discharging the lien, the bond costs, the attorney cost, whatever it is, deducted from future payments. I keep delaying the, we got to change the contractor. I'm sure everyone is chomping at the bit. They want to hear about that because many people have experienced that. I experienced it myself, not on a large development project, but on a home renovation. And luckily I stayed ahead of the money. So I didn't need any leverage. I just said, go home. And I got somebody else to come in and finish the job. And there was one more thing, actually, that I wanted to ask you about. What if there's construction financing? Now you have another player that's going to be monitoring the progress of the project because there are going to be draws on the construction loan to pay the contractor based on the progress of the project. What, what, do, you, what do you suggest in that? case. So generally, what we'll do is we'll provide during the requisition process that the bank's representative has to approve the requisition, has to approve how much work was done on that periodic requisition form. They generally walk through the project with the owner, sometimes I guess the architect, and they will sign off on the requisition beforehand. Now, the problem there becomes uh, a timing issue. Everybody wants to get paid quickly, and this adds another layer of several days or whatever it is, sometimes week, before a requisition is approved for payment. So in our contracts, we'll provide, if we know that there's going to be a lender involved, we'll provide that the payment to the contractor is not due until some days after approval by both the architect and the lender so that we're able to make sure that we're actually going to get our funding for this. Brian did a great job summarizing the, the role of the, the bank. And I think it becomes more complicated because in the time it takes to get that check from the bank, you may decide that your contractor has delayed the project and or caused you damage in some way, and you no longer want to release that check after the bank has given you the money for it. And then it becomes a little more complicated as to how you approach that. You know, you obviously have to notify the bank of what's happening because they need lien waivers, and so they won't fund the next requisition unless they know where the money went that they gave you. I think part of that is also mitigated by the fact that you're holding retainage of generally 10% or sometimes even more, but 10% is pretty standard. Even if there's some 
minor deviations you discover afterwards within that payment period where it's approved and it's not funded yet, you can either address that through deducts in or credits in the next payment requisition or just address it with the fact that you're holding the the retainage and pay for any repairs or remediations out of the retainage funds later on. Well, I think we're finally at that point where we're going to talk about what happens when it just goes south and you've got to change the contractor. And and does, would this also involve changing the CM too, maybe sometimes? And so, so you can replace the subcontractor, you can replace the general contractor or construction manager, you can replace both on a project. And it's different depending on which one you're doing. It's, it's, it's a lot more complicated to replace the general contractor or CM on the job than the subcontractors. You're dealing with one trade and you're, you don't have to worry about assigning contracts when you're trying to replace the subcontractor. The timing of doing a replacement is key. You have to have a lot of things lined up in order to effectively do that. You need a backup plan, so you must have another contractor in place. How do I get another contractor? Let's say, for argument's sake, I am replacing uh, the concrete contractor on a job, and I have to go out into the market, find another person to take over doing the concrete in the building. They have to assume the responsibility for all of the work that's been done already. And you have to do all of this without your existing contractor finding out that this is going on. And while there may be a lot of concrete contractors, there are only so many uh, suppliers to the concrete contractors. And so somewhere along the line, you run the risk of asking questions or your your new concrete contractor asking questions that alerts the existing contractor to their being replaced. I don't know about you, but if I'm working for someone and I think they're going to replace me, I'm probably going to react pretty negatively to that. Um, sometimes they will try to, you know, stop the job. They'll try to get as much money out of the project as they th- as they think they can get. They, they have a lot of different actions. They may start sending you letters every day telling you that you're delaying them as they start, you know, preparing for a, a lawsuit. The other thing to think about when replacing a contractor is how much is it going to cost you to do that? In most cases, it costs you more than you had originally budgeted for that item. You're going to pay a premium for someone to assume all of the risks associated with the project and taking on the work that was performed by this previous contractor, sight unseen. And then there's timing. You know, how much time are you going to lose when you take one contractor off the job and you bring the next one on? Sometimes it's 30 days, sometimes it's one day, depends on the the trade and how complicated it is. It could be several months if shop drawings are involved. It could be a year if shop drawings and materials are involved. If you had to replace a curtain wall contractor, for example, it could be a year before your, your new contractor is ready to take over that project and start working again. In the case of replacing your general contractor, there's an additional level of problems that you'll face when doing that. You need to assign all of the contracts for all the subcontractors to some new entity that they don't know, they may not want to work for, they they may have existing litigation pending with your new general contractor. It's very hard to make a clean break and have all of those relationships work out. 
You also have to worry about the documents. Typically on projects, the construction manager or general contractor maintain all of the records. They keep all of the records for the project, both in paper and digital form. And it is extremely challenging to get those documents so that you can continue working on the project when you replace them. Can you tell us about where this actually did happen and what the outcome was, how much longer did it take, and how much extra it cost? Sure. So we were working on a project where we needed to replace the concrete contractor on the project and the the construction manager on the project at the same time. We had to go out into the market and find someone who, because we couldn't bring them into the building to look at it, they had to sight unseen take over all of the responsibility for the existing concrete in the building, which includes all that structural work that's done and has to be approved by the Department of Buildings. They had to take over the shop drawings that they did not draw. They had to take over whatever materials were available. They had to get a crane on the job. And that was just for the concrete contractor. And then you look at the general contractor that we're replacing, and he has an online platform that he uses to manage all of the documents for our project. There's no paper files anywhere. That company that, the, that they were using for that platform said when we had asked them about getting a copy of that, well, you have to go through the contractor because they own it, they pay for it. We can't provide it to you. So we had to establish a strategy and a story that we could tell to the contractor to get our digital documents and upload that into another digital platform that we had to purchase and set up on the side without them knowing so that we could make this switch. Once all of these pieces are in place, you have a contract, you have all your contractors, you have all your documents, everything is ready to go. Then you need to look at what your contract says about terminating someone and how you actually go about that process. And it's very important that you do what the contract says. There are a lot of obligations to doing it, the types of notices you can give. And I think Brian can, can shed some light on that topic. And before, Brian, before you uh, tell that part of the story, was this a case where you came in after? Or were you there right from the very beginning of the project? I was brought in on this project specifically for this reason. Um, we have a lot of expertise in executing replacement strategies. And this was a case where the owner simply could not continue working with the existing team that they had. And we had to come up with a solution to do that. And I think the premium that we paid on the overall project budget to do this was somewhere in the neighborhood of five to seven percent. Five to seven percent of the whole project of cost. the whole project cost. Yes, wow. yeah. was just the replacement. I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of a disaster situation. It's really not bad. Well, there's also the time lost, right? We we were really really effective in executing this. We only lost thirty days. Um, this included getting a crane and getting the concrete contractor back to work. All things considered, I thought that we did a great job, but you're still talking about millions of dollars that had to be spent making this transition, and that is not a rounding error. The um, All right, so you, you were called in be to execute this strategy because they wanted to replace the general contractor. Brian, when you tell your part of the story from your perspective, are there items that can be included in the original construction contract that provide for a swifter and less expensive solution 
if you have to change the general contractor? Absolutely. The contract itself can provide for turnover of the documents upon termination. Uh, generally, the contractor is going to require that they're paid up to at least a certain level, up to at least disputed amount for the turnover of those documents. Contract will provide for who own, actually owns the documents and can use them. So that removes a litigation point at a future date. The contracts will also provide for different types of terminations. I don't believe I was involved in the project that Mike's referring to, but generally our contracts will provide for both a termination for cause as well as a termination for convenience. In a termination for cause, the owner will have specific reasons for terminating the contractor or the CM, whether it's delays or poor performance of work or they've abandoned the project, whatever it is, there's specific causes that are delineated within the contract. But there's also a provision in the contract that provides for termination for convenience where the owner can terminate the contract upon certain notice and upon payment of certain fees to the contractor to terminate the contract for any reason or for no reason. So at the end of the day, the owner can get out of these contracts uh, using the contractual devices that we set up months or even a year or so before in the contracting process. It just needs to be thought out thoroughly. Unfortunately, you know, when we're signing the contracts, everyone's in this kumbaya, happy relationship. Everyone's, you know, we're going to get this done. We're all going to make some money. And then, you know, fast forward six months, a year, year and a half down the road, and, you know, parties are fighting. People don't think that that relationship is going to devolve the way it does, or even sometimes as quickly as it does. The only good thing about this in a, in a lot of projects, I know in the one Michael was just talking about, you know, they had to go around the contractor and find uh, a new contractor and find uh, a ways to get the electronic material on the, on the project delivery method. But a lot of times the project team, the contractor and the owner have their relationship is devolved over a period of time to the point where it's not really going to be that much of a surprise to the contractor or to the subcontractor that they're being terminated and kicked off the project. So in that respect, a lot of times, you know, the attorneys start talking, deals are worked out, but it, it's definitely a tough uh, you know, it's, it's, it's akin to a divorce. It's a tough situation. It's something that really needs to be thought out. I mean, I think you're lucky you only lost a month in duration. I mean, some of these delays can cost months, half a year. It would not be unusual to say that, you know, we've lost that kind of time. The premium to, depending on what work is in place and what level where we've terminated the project, some contractors are not going to come in and say, I'm taking responsibility for all of their work. I'll take, you know, what I can visually see, but I'm not going to look, I'm not going to take responsibility for hidden defects in the construction. How can I be responsible for that? They'll say. And so negotiating points in the replacement contracts, sometimes the contractor is not going to, you know, if it's not specifically set forth in the contract that they have to assign the the subcontracts to you, they're not going to give them to you. And you have to go out and get a whole new team. What if you're terminating a, you know, uh, a contractor who has a permit on the project, a plumber, an electrician? You have to not only go out and find a new contract, you have to transfer the permit to them and all the, the uh, paperwork with the proper authorities, the DOB. It's a process. And it's something that really needs to be thought out if... Um, it needs to be done. And then there's the cost that your chances are you're going to have liens that are placed on the project. You're going to have a uh, dispute and litigation almost immediately filed. So not only are you spending the cost on building your building, you're now spending your costs on litigating. So it's definitely something that really needs to be thought out. Sometimes it could be avoided just by changing certain key personnel at the project. 
but oftentimes it's not. And we're left with that solution, having to terminate the contract for either cause or for convenience if necessary. So for would-be developers and developers that don't have a tremendous amount of experience, I hope that by listening to this, they don't say, well, gee, you know, maybe that's not for me. I hope that what they do say is that proper planning and being incredibly observant and detail-oriented in advance is going to result in the highest probability of a successful project, that they will all come with issues and problems because that's just the way it is, but you can minimize that up front as opposed to dealing with it after the fact. Do you have a percentage of all projects that are being done that go smoothly? I think that number's close to zero. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We wouldn't have jobs if projects went smoothly. No, there are things that happen on projects that are, you know, what we would call the cost of doing business is way it is what it is is another way to look at it. These are things that happen where we have contingencies to deal with these problems. Things that are exotic problems, like if you had a fatality on a project or the crane collapsed or, you know, DOB gave you a stop work order and didn't let you return to work for six months. They're very hard to, to plan to address those types of problems. And certainly replacing a contractor is not something that you start a project thinking, I'm going to hire him, but I'm going to fire him halfway through. You generally don't take that mentality uh, on a project. That's why you need to have contingencies. You need to have retainage on contractors so that you have leverage. And then you need to be able to exercise, you know, the other tools that you have to get these contractors to perform. You know, should you be backcharging them? Do they have a, a bond or surety on the project that you can call? Is there subcontractor default insurance? These are the tools that we look at on projects, and depending on the size and the, the complexity of the project, you know, different solutions apply to different projects. But we are looking for strategies to mitigate problems and deal with the repercussions and, and, and see what recourse you have if you do have a problem on the job and it gets delayed for some reason. One of the other tools that we look at, particularly when dealing with, with construction managers and GCs, is, is the project schedule. Often we have liquidated damages on projects uh, just because they're easier to prove than consequential damages. And it's it's an important tool um, or, or, or a big stick, if you want to think about it from the, the, the Roosevelt standpoint, of how do we get the contractor to do their job and finish our project on time. Liquidated damages are obviously an important part of the contract, but sometimes you want to be able to get other damages as well. The consequential damages could be significantly more money. There's actual damages. It's really going to depend on where the project goes south. You want to have that ability written into the contract to look to be able to draw upon when needed. The liquidated damage number has to be enough that it's go, it's actually going to compensate the owner, but it can't be uh, too much that it's going to be a detriment to the contractor to even signing the contract. So it's there's given play in those roles as well. So it's definitely uh, something to think about during the contracting stage. But it's n- I don't think there's one size solution to how to stop the risks. And I think that's pretty much been the, the overall theme. There's not really one size solution to any of these projects. So as a developer, when you're doing your initial analysis and you're 
crunching all the numbers for the entire project, which of course are going to be revised as time goes on and you have more information. Is there a percentage of total cost of project that you think somebody should put in as, you know, a worst case scenario contingency so that they know if the absolute disaster happens, you know, this is my worst case scenario. I still want to move ahead. If things go smoothly because I plan properly up front, I'm just going to have a better outcome in my project. But do you have like a kind of a percentage of total cost of job that somebody should put in as a contingency? On most projects, we recommend a 10% contingency. That is dependent on the complexity of the project and the, the stage of the project and the drawings. As a project continues to progress, you can lower that amount and use that money for other things or just put it back in your pocket and say, I don't need to apply it to this project. That was fantastic and a lot of dense material, and I'm sure our listeners very, very happy about what they learned today. But in closing, I'd like to ask both of you, what would be the advice that you would give somebody to make sure they're doing what it is that they need to do to have as a positive outcome as possible in a development project that they're doing? I think that you should spend time with your experts that you trust to run the project. The more that you understand what they're doing, the better equipped you'll be to make decisions when they need, when they ask you questions or when they need you to make a decision on something, and the better prepared you'll be for the next project that you do. I would say gather your team early, meet with them often, and let them advise you in what they do best. And if they can get together early and know each other and work together, they're going to make the transition of this project from acquisition to completion as smooth and as easy as possible for you. And that's the best you can hope for sometimes. Michael Bryan, that was incredible. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm sure our listeners are going to have additional questions. How would they be able to get in touch with you? Uh, just give me either a phone number, an email address, a website, or all three. Michael? Best way to get in touch with me is either through my website, www.nukatola.com, N-U-C-A-T-O-L-A, or you can email me directly at michael at nukatola.com. Brian? You can reach me through our website at www.goldsteinhall.com or you can email me at bmarkowitz, M-A-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z at goldsteinhall.com. And everyone, I'm going to put that in the show notes so uh, you don't have to play it back 10 times to write it down. You can just go into the show notes and it'll be there. Michael, Brian, thanks for being here. Thank you for having us, Bill. Thank you very much. And thanks for having us. Hey there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Don't want to miss an episode? Then subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for Realty Speak on your device's podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Overcast on Apple devices. To share with others, just choose Share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. And now, Realty Speak is also on Spotify. And of course, 
you and I can connect to chat about your plans with your real estate investments, whether to buy, sell, or just chat about strategies on what you currently own. The website is BillWidener.com, and all my information is there. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.